Hey guys, before you listen to this podcast, I have a very special announcement to make. If you are a winery trying to enter the US market or a winery in US looking for more awareness in the on-premise channels like restaurants and wine bars, Sommelier's Choice Awards submission is now open. This is where your wines will be rated by sommeliers and wine directors of USA for the US on-premise market. So have a look at sommelierschoiceawards.com for more information on how you can get your wines into that. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Today, with the, the consumer has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years, and the millennials are, are not married to a particular brand anymore. And so uh, if you're a new brand entering America, you have a good story and you have authenticity, then you have a potential customer. Uh, very quickly in America. Hi, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. On this episode, I bring my old friend, John Baudet, president and founder of MHW, as my guest. John, welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Sid. Um, uh, look forward to uh, spending a few minutes with you now. Great, great. So, John, uh, could you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and MHW, please? Uh, sure. Um, well, I run MHW. Uh, we... we uh, launched this service model back about 25 years ago, but, but a little bit of the history, the, the company MHW Limited actually goes back to 1934, one of the first companies to have been licensed uh, after Prohibition. And it was owned by PepsiCo for many years as a counter-trade mechanism uh, with the for- former Soviet Union, and um, that lasted for many decades. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, PepsiCo effectively created Stolishnaya for the U.S. market uh, the Russian vodka and in exchange was shipping Pepsi concentrate into the Soviet Union. That was their need uh, to acquire a company, which was MHW at the time. This goes back to 1970. So uh, fast forward in the mid uh, 90s, um, after Gorbachev came in and, and uh, the Soviet Union fell, uh, it was at that time that Pepsi got a tremendous offer uh, from Grand Met, uh, at the time, Diageo, in theory today, uh, for the rights to Stolichnaya, and they sold those rights. I had worked in many divisions of PepsiCo, uh, both in international, and I was CFO of the import and distribution company, uh, which is actually the, the uh, formerly called Michel Henry. And it was at that time that um, we looked at the uh, myself and a couple of former Pepsi executives uh, looked at the opportunity in America. This was at the advent of the internet and the potential of a proliferation of brands in America. And uh, back then you might've had five or six imported vodkas. Today, there'd be hundreds. Uh, So this was a model. We effectively created a model back then to assist new brands, create a platform so that brands could enter what was viewed as a complicated U.S. market. And, and so uh, how did it add beer licenses? And we did that, as I said, 25 years ago. We, we employ about 110 people here in the headquarters in New York. Uh, so we import and distribute wine, spirits, and beer. And we have wholesale operations, helping brands get to market in California, New York, New Jersey, and Florida. We also opened up a European operation, a similar service model outside of Amsterdam, to uh, cover the EU market. Fantastic. Great. So I think well, I'll, I'll just add a few things here uh, to give some context to the audience. Uh, so in, in uh, John's company, MHW, provides infrastructure and compliance solutions and logistical solutions for brands you know, trying to uh, grow their distribution in the U.S. market or even uh, enter the U.S. market. You know, if uh, you don't have an importer, I mean, that is one way to sort of grow your distribution in the U.S. market. John, I, I'll be very honest with you. You are, you know, one of the top five uh, people in the world I really admire uh, for the hunger that you still have in building your business. I really look up to that. Uh, and at the same time, you uh, have seen everything and you do share your experience in a very uh, educational way to the industry people who are trying to, you know, make their mark. So I really uh, look, I look, I'm looking forward to this uh, tips from yourself, especially who've seen 20 plus years in MHW and overall like 35 years in the industry. So I think uh, let's dive. Uh, yeah, John. No, you, you know, Sid, I, I, I just to return that compliment a little bit, I've had the opportunity to, to actually work with you to do seminars 
in places around the world like Australia, like, uh, you know, London. And I've always enjoyed that and, and quite impressed with your ability, the way you've taken, um, you know, some of the new approaches in our industry uh, you've brought to beverage alcohol in the way of media, social media, and things like that, and getting the message out and really helping helping suppliers around the world uh, effectively evaluate where their next move should be. And I think you've been a leader in doing that uh, globally, and, and, and I give you and your organization a lot of uh, credit for that, and it's been an absolute pleasure in the past to work with you. So thanks a lot. Uh, I, I guess enough of the compliments. So we'll jump right in. Go ahead. <laughs> thanks a lot. So I think uh, what we wanted to do in this uh, episode is based on your experience and you worked with almost 20,000 brands, if not more, you have seen a lot of success stories, a lot of uh, failures, a lot of brands struggling. You, you know, I mean, you have diagnosed, you know, a lot of brands. So uh, what I wanted to dive into was, you know, what are the successful criteria for an effective brand launch and I think uh, I can just start with uh, a basic uh, like a market question here for now like what are the trends that you see in 2020 uh, for the U.S. market John? Well you, you know the U.S. market clearly if I'm a supplier anywhere in the world I've got to have my eye on the U.S. Uh, we've got tremendous tailwinds going on here right now to give you an idea Sid we'll finish this year 2019 overall Spirits volume will probably be up somewhere around 3%. Uh, and to give you an idea, I, you know that the spirit volume, nine liter cases in America, is a, a little over 230 million cases. So we'll finish up 2019 at about plus 3%. And then going into next year, you can expect pretty much a similar number. The same thing, wine, wine in the US, we're at about 350 million cases. We'll finish this year, probably we're, we're, we're heading, when I, based on the information I'm reading, somewhere around 1% in volume growth, probably 3% growth in, in, in dollars. And then in beer, um, we'll probably finish similar to 2018. This year, we'll probably finish anywhere from a half a point to 1% down. But as you know, beer in the United States is almost 3 billion cases. So when you compare the size of, of, of that, now, but the beauty of America is that within all of these categories, we could sit here and talk about any category and, and I will be able to point to significant success, success stories amongst all of them. And, and it is, it's remarkable. I, I, I was just on a uh, call yesterday when just looking at beer, for example, you're, you're aware that uh, Bud Light, Coors Light and, and, and Miller, these brands are, are suffering uh, based on the fact that millennials are, are trading uh, across to um, wine and spirits and so forth. Yet here we are with this hard seltzer phenomenon that's going on in America. And, and if you and I were talking five years ago, it, it effectively didn't exist. And now uh, this year, 2019, there's going to be somewhere between 15 and maybe as high as 18 uh, million cases of a little category that didn't really exist five years ago. So just when you think you've seen it all, you realize you haven't and it just keeps changing, but all in a positive, positive way. So America is clearly the place where I think foreign suppliers, I, I could talk about other tailwinds and, and, you know, we have a good economy. That's part of the reason we're, we're faring very well in America. But as you know, Sid, we've also got the benefit of the, what they call CBMA, the Craft Beverage Modernization Tax Act. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later, but that's had a, a great impact and potentially a phenomenal impact in the future if it continues. Yep. I think undoubtedly, I mean, we've we've seen and do trade shows in at least about four markets now. And for sure, U.S. still remains, you know, uh, most, uh, like I would say, real uh, mature, but at the same time, the most attractive market uh, for our exhibitors and for the customers. You know, there is no doubt about it, uh, especially for the medium and small guys. I mean, you know, like you, you gave a case of Budweiser and Miller, for example. I mean, they are big brands, but if you are really a small or a medium size, I mean, the room to grow in this market is huge. Like, you know, you can just keep on growing from zero to 100 million and you won't even notice that you are a hundred million dollar business. It, 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 exactly. It, it is. And, and, the, and the beauty of it here is that 
as you know, today with the, the consumer has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years and the millennials are, are not married to a particular brand anymore. And so uh, if you're a new brand entering America, you have a good story and you have authenticity, then you have a potential customer uh, very quickly in America. Now, getting to them obviously is a challenge. We, we understand that, but, but certainly the consumer is out there looking for you. So I think that's, that's the beauty of, of America today and probably very similar. I'm sure you could tell me that in other parts of the world. We see that in the EU for sure uh, now that we've opened up our operation there. But as you travel uh, to places, uh, South America and, and, and the Far East, I'm sure you see some of the same things, some of the same trends. Yeah, but in fact, America gives you uh, a, f- a better chance. Like you will always g- get the first order. And if things don't work out, you may not see the second order. Whereas other countries, it's still a challenge to even get the first order. So I still I still like that entrepreneur spirit in America. Uh, people still want to try and give you a chance. You know, if you, if they see passion in you, if they really see that you you understand the business side of things. Uh, but yeah, we'll get we'll get into all that. Uh, so for the brand launch, John, right? Like, uh, let's let's uh, give a macro picture on what are the important factors that go into brand launch, and then we will go deeper into each of them. Sure. Well, you know, as we look at some of the successful brands that have come through the MHW system, and there have been some phenomenal ones, and we measure that obviously oftentimes by the valuation. Uh, that's achieved when the brand is sold to a major player. So, so that's a big part of what goes on here, especially really in the spirits category, more so in spirits than, than the others, wine and beer. But many brands are built to be sold. And, and as you know, the, the way the major companies like the Diageo's, Pernod Ricard, Beam, these people, you know, Bacardi, they need to add volume to their business. And in an, in an environment where consumers uh, are moving away from what used to be the, the, the mega brands. Um, a brand like Bacardi is losing a couple of hundred thousand cases every year and having a hard time. It's still a phenomenal brand, don't get me wrong, and, and we'd all like to have their volume, but the point is that consumers are, are quick to move to, to, to other, uh, you know, uh, other, other brands. And I think what what you have to do in, in America is, is recognize that if you're going to launch a product, the opportunity is there, but there are certain uh, r- really elements that you've got to have when you're thinking about entering the market and, and launching a brand. And, and we've studied these, as I mentioned, when we've looked at uh, some of these brands that have sold for great multiples, and we've talked to the owners of those brands, and we've had a chance to observe and get there perspective on it. And, and we've always come down to really five critical areas. And, and, and they're the ones that would be pretty obvious to, to many. But, you know, product creation and development, I mean, that's a big area when you're creating your package, the name, the liquid and the story. Very, very important today, uh, much more important today than, than ever. Route to market, as you know, that's the number two critical area. You know, the, who are your distri- distribution partners, the channels, are you going to do test marketing? If you are testing, are you testing in the right places so you can get a true read? Um, you know, are you putting all your eggs in the one test market basket? You don't want to always do that because you may not get a, a full read on what the U.S. country potential really is. Then the third one would be obvious, another obvious one, marketing and sales strategy and that execution, right? How you're going to go uh, to the consumer and to the trade. The other two big ones are the in, the infrastructure, your sales, your operation, your team. You know, what are you coming to market with? You know, what what tools are you bringing? What people are you bringing? And then lastly, the business planning. You know, funding and the timeline. Those are critical. And 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 so again, it is as we've talked about in the past when you really review some of the major success successful stories that, that, that we've seen, you know, a recent one would be Casamigos. Uh, so we, we've had the opportunity to work with them for many years. And then Diageo comes along and acquires them for a tremendous multiple. And you look at the people who were involved in that project uh, and, and you see the, the, the areas that I just discussed, you know, you could almost say that they would have scored 
you know, an A across all five of those. And, and, and I've talked about that in seminars in the, in the past, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to get high marks across those five or so critical areas or any one of those can, can hurt you and, and hurt the brand's potential. Um, I was just on right before we got on today, we, we assisted a brand launch recently, uh, Downton Abbey, which, which has a, a tremendous following. Um, you know, they just had a movie launch. So they, they've introduced uh, Downton Abbey gin and, and scotch. And so, again, they're doing a lot of the things that we just talked about. Uh, it'll, it's, it's more in test market in a few places and packaging was very important. They seem to be checking a lot of the boxes. It's still early stage, but that's a great example of, uh, of, of a brand that is looking at America, not just short term, but, but, you know, based on the power of the name and, and recognition and the social media opportunity, how do you build a lasting brand? And so again, that's a good example. Uh, we we've seen today, um, the effect of social media and celebrities and what they can do very quickly for a brand and and they can help you a lot and they can also potentially hurt you a lot when we go back to that conversation about authenticity and what consumers the their ability the consumer's ability today to research and find out is a celebrity really do they really have their heart and soul in a brand or have they done nothing more than lend their name those kinds of things today are very, very critical. Yeah, so I was, I, I was sort of going to come back on, on that uh, brand example that you gave. Let's say Diageo, I think, I believe, paid seven hundred million or something. I'm, I'm, I may not be right, but for example, obviously, which, which one? Uh, the George Clooney's yeah. uh, tequila. Yes. So the, that was a, a one billion dollar wow. valuation. They, they. Right. They got, yeah. Right. Now, for example, I mean, we all know it's not George Clooney who's doing the hand selling and knocking the doors and opening and doing product sampling, right? So let me uh, ask you, like, who was the, there must, it, it all boils down to one person who was driving it. Who was it? Like, vice president, president, or marketing, or a sales manager? Who drives this, like, with so much passion and, and put the product in distribution and the depletion? Like, there must be, it must be boiling down to, like one or two people, right? Like brand ambassador, or who's that person, which is super important in building from zero to X amount. Right, right. Well, it is, it goes back to one of the points we brought up before about the infrastructure, right? Assume you have, you, you have to assume, obviously Clooney, in that case, Clooney is involved in a brand. He does a very good job of subtly getting the message out there, right? It, he, he, it's amazing how well he did that. But you're absolutely right. That won't work unless you have the infrastructure, the route to market, the sales and marketing strategy, and then the right planning. And, and those things, they happen to have a guy, that particular guy, Lee Einseidler, was involved in uh, uh, great- and it, it gives me a hint that this guy has so much experience. He really knows the pulse of the market. He, he does. And he was involved in Grey Goose, uh, with the Sydney Frank company. So he has a track record of success of understanding how the US market works, how the distributors work, the mentality of the distributors, incentive programs, all those kinds of things. You have someone who's leading that, but he's got the power and the passion of a Clooney because that's very important. Uh, Clooney was engaged in some of this. And he, he, as I said, he did a very good job from a social media standpoint. We, we had a very, here's a great example. We're doing one right now, a uh, mezcal out of Mexico, uh, which is, by the way, mezcal is a very hot category right now, probably will surpass half a million cases this year. Doesn't seem like a lot when you think about it in terms of overall spirits at 230 million, but it's a, basically a new category and it's going to draw heavily from tequila in the coming years. So, so, but in this particular one, Dos Hombres is led by two actors, um, Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul. They're most well known recently for Breaking Bad, a very successful uh, show. On, and, and, and so, They've launched this brand, and I saw the power of social media. I, I see where, to your point, Sid, they're the ones that are putting the sweat and, and, and time and money into it themselves, and, and, and they're engaged. But yes, they have players around them. I, 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 obviously, they came, they came to MHW, so they've got the infrastructure. They have route to market. They have a lot of, um, I, I guess, input 
from from players are in our organization, but obviously they've gone out and and, and they've uh, used some contacts and have some relationships now with some of the major wholesalers. Um, so I think that that's helped them tremendously. But it's that combination of of of, of actual uh, an authentic, you know, celebrity that yeah, I think it's a combination of that push and pull. Like pull can come from the marketing, uh, which drives sales from the retail, and then the push has to come from the experience and the trade and the the nuts and bolts of the industry. Uh, exactly, and I think. You know, if you do that right, you know, you increase your chances dramatically, but you got to have the right players. You know that if you come into the United States, even if you're a foreign brand with all kinds of success in the homelands, when you come to America, it is a different a, a different model. I mean, forget about master. foreign brands. I I had like so much retailers uh, telling me that I will not buy Budweiser if they don't give me this price. I'll buy Miller. Like forget about foreign. <laughs> right. I mean, they won't buy Budweiser. Imagine that. Right. No. Right? no I, <laughs> so uh, let's go back to uh, our uh, product creation. I had one question. Lots of spirit producers, especially the spirits guys, you know, ask uh, that do I change my packaging to 750 ml? You know, uh, in Europe it's 700 ml. What's your take on that? Like, how do they go about product creation? Well, I mean, again, the United States. Uh, we, we do have that 750 ml requirement. Our, our standard sizes are are different from, from other places. But again, today with the way packaging, you know, you can get bottle molds uh, developed today a lot cheaper than years ago, as you know. And I think there are uh, plenty of sources out there for glass and packaging at a very, very reasonable cost. And that's made things a lot easier for, for brands. Packaging is critical in the United States, as it is, I'm sure, in other parts of the world, assuming the liquid is going to be very good. I mean, obviously, no one should go to market with a poor liquid, but packaging becomes very critical because of consumer choice. When they walk into stores and they look at shelves, clearly, um, and, and I'm talking about wine as well as, as beer and spirits, there are so many labels there. Packaging can make a very, very big difference in terms of getting trial. Um, so I, 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 a unique packaging. But uh, it's funny you mentioned the 750. Um, there's a movement right now in America to, to eliminate some of those stand, what we call standards of fill and to la- allow the 70 CL. I'm not sure whether it'll get enough support. Uh, TTB is evaluating it right now because we have the same problem. We have brands that want to go from America at the 750 into the EU. And of course, we're restricted due to the 70 CL size, but um, we'd like to see something more consistent globally on that front. Yep, got it. So I think uh, I'll also add my two cents to this product packaging. I think uh, I've noticed that people don't pay attention to uh, the branded display, but I think US is big on uh, a nice quality carton. Like retailers hate a bad quality carton or a brown box. You know, they really want to identify, even the distributors want to identify. We're talking small and medium distributors here who don't have like systems in place. You know, they visually find your case when they are loading the truck. So I think, you know, making sure that your case is nice, good quality branded really helps the trade. And they understand that you understand the business, like you are an educated supplier. Very, very important. And that when you go to them, you know, you've got to be able to check the key boxes, right? One of the big boxes being, hey, you know, are you in play? Meaning, do you have a distributor? Can I get the product, you know, tomorrow if I need it? It's very, very difficult uh, and, 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 you know, almost impossible uh, to think you're going to get interest from players in America if you don't have a solid sales proposition, including a brand that can be acquired the next day or two. Very, very, very important. On the route to market, John, uh, what's your advice or what's your, I know that it depends on the product, I'm sure, and, and, the, and the funding and the, and the you know, appetite to, and the ambition, but what's your route to market strategy? Like, would you pick a capital city or a couple of states that you, you think people normally test their brands like New York or California? Because you've seen a lot of brands, right? So is there a, a set in stone, like some cities and states where they can get some good feedback? Yeah, you know, um, Sid, it's a it's a great question because America. When people look at the American market, you, you know, with your experience, you recognize it can almost be fifty separate 
countries, right? Like, like, like Europe in, in many ways. But um, if you're bring, if you, if you're a foreign brand coming into America, I, I, I'm a big advocate of just targeting a couple of key markets and depending on your category, if you're, if you're looking at uh, the wine side and you're an imported brand, while California may be by far and away the largest consumption market, clearly a lot of that consumption is in the area of domestic wines. So when it comes to imports, the New York, what we call the New York metro market, where you can touch New Jersey, northern New Jersey, I should say, New York City, Westchester, and Long Island, the amount uh, you're talking over 15 million cases of imported product just in that market. And, and, and the beauty of, of going to a place like New York is that when we talk about route to market, you know, there are service providers like an MHW where you can be effectively test marketing very, very quickly and being able to get to the retailer and get orders delivered following day. But that, that, that's an important element of you know, for considering different markets, it's it's the route to market. How easy is it for you to get your product to a retailer? And it it, it tends to be markets like California, New York, and Florida, three of the uh, clearly the top markets in the U.S. Fortunately, there are some pretty good third-party service providers that can assist in 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 helping get to that. Uh, get to that retailer. So I'm a big advocate of New York, Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago. Again, you, you have a significant amount of consumers there. And when it comes to imported brands, that's where a lot of that consumption is taking place. Understood. Uh, for the marketing and sales part, uh, what do you advise Like, if for a small and medium-sized uh, winery or brewery or a distillery who cannot afford brand ambassadors, uh, what's the best way to put their money? You know, like where is the biggest ROI? Uh, you giving back to the retailer or sales rep incentives? Well, again, depending on whether you've got your brand uh, and, and it, you know, if you're fortunate, some of the wineries, for example, uh, overseas are able to secure an agreement with a small to medium sized uh, importer in a market like New York. If they're able to do that, then it's really going to come down to how much input and effort they can provide the uh, importer. And usually that involves, as you well know, feet on the street. That, that's a critical element today, uh, more so than ever before. The challenge is that everybody knows that today, Sid. When you and I used to talk about this five or six years ago, it was a little bit of a novelty almost. Well, today, it's not a question of whether you have them. The assumption is you're going to have them. The distributors today, whether it's the big guys or the medium to small, they expect the supplier to do a lot of the legwork. And so uh, now on, on, on the flip side is that there are now um, options and assets out there that, that you can tap into that, that really didn't exist five years ago. We, we, we have a relationship with a company uh, called Bevstrat, for example. They, they started just a couple of years ago, and they actually, that's what they do. They've got five or six uh, people on the ground in markets like New York, Miami, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago. Uh, and, and, and there you're able to effectively tap into those sales reps and have them out there promoting or selling your product. So I know, I know about, uh, Brian, I think. Yes. And so basically what you pay on commission or how, how does this model work? No, there's a, there's a certain fee that's paid. Um, and, and, and the beauty of that model is that it, it's basically what they call touches. They actually have a call center that's out there. Uh, making appointments for their sales reps and the reps are able to get some, which is very uh, challenging for many, but it's, it's getting some time, uh, actual dedicated time from retailers to talk about a, a new product or an existing product for that matter. And so those folks are out there setting those appointments, the rep goes in and they're able to effectively uh, present a product. Now, again, it still doesn't mean that the brand owner can sit back and relax. They've still got to be very engaged. And these are brands, it, it, they may not just be existing brands, uh, I'm sorry, new brands coming to the market, Sid, but as you know, an existing brand with a Southern or, or R&DC anywhere in, in the country, they need the same kind of support 
from the brand owner as as the small guy because of the size of their book. I think you're right. I mean, after the first time, like that first Monday when the sales rep's going to take your brand, you're done. I mean, literally, it's it's up to the supplier to make sure the product moves and the the distributors are going to take it again and again and again uh, until the consumers and the retailers are not asking. There is no distributor, which I know, would put an effort to take it again. But I don't blame them. It's their business, right? They're going to give uh, someone else a try and see what moves. Exactly. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's literally, uh, I think pretty much all the distributors are sort of a fulfillment houses. I mean, suppliers need to really understand that. And I think I, I really... Uh, uh, have pity for suppliers that distribution is the toughest business period I mean it's so tough like I think distributors are in collection business these days right like it's it's the toughest it's easy, easy to be a supplier and importer than to be a distributor or selling to the retail what I mean by that no you, you what's your take on that it is I, I probably I, when you talk about the delivery it's amazing you know I know in our in, in our business so many of the brands that start and want to go let's say we assist them in selling direct to retail in New York, as I mentioned, uh, Florida, New Jersey, California, those major markets. But so many of them, Sid, are looking to graduate uh, from MHW's distribution to retail to, let's say, Southern or RNDC, Breakthrough and so forth. And and because, again, your point about, yes, they are delivery service, but they do bring a, you know, a, uh, what I'll say, a credibility to the market, uh, meaning that when you get when you're of a size and you can make it into your to their book and and you're meaningful in their book and you're doing all the right things what they can do is i agree but you know as as you say you know they expect you to build up oh, using they do. uh they, like let's say mhw and then you you once you're ready for the national chains and have got some pre-orders and whatnot then it makes sense to go yes. on that route yeah, co- correct i mean it's very very difficult it's, it would be hard to get a return phone call as you know from them today on a new brand. But my point is that I've heard the comments about, oh yeah, they're, they're basically a delivery service. But but on the flip side, what we have to realize is that what they can do if a brand starts to take hold and a little bit of a firelight, that big wholesaler is capable of getting that message across 150, for example, salespeople that very quickly can turn that little spark into a raging fire. And I give them some credit because they know how to effectively communicate that down to the sales force on a hot brand. And that's how some of these brands, if you, if you notice, uh, if something blows up in, in, in the United States, oftentimes it's those feet on the street from the distributors that were able to help, help make, that, make that happen. But I'm with you. I mean, none of that happens. None of that happens without a lot of great work by the brand owner. Because without that, it's- yeah, I mean, what, what I meant, what I meant was, you know, uh, you got to feel for the distributor. I mean, if you really feel and care about the distributor's business, then you will yes. succeed. Yeah, yes, and you're right, and you have to be educated and knowledgeable of what makes them tick. Right? Why are they going to promote one product? How do you incentivize? What are the margins they're earning on a particular brand in a particular category, and how how do you fare against that? All those things, you're right. And I know you, you, you've operated your businesses historically in the United States. You've sold product here and you know the distributor mentality and you've seen that mentality change over the years. And some of these major wholesalers, they go through a shedding process every year now and they look at brands and they look at contributions and they say, hey, this 10%, we've got to move out of here, allow room for a new 10% that can throw off, you know, potentially more profitability for us so you know while it's bad for some it does open the door for others as well and there are still some great what i'll call mid-size import slash distributors you know in major markets and so uh, while those are not as easy to secure today as they might have been years ago because of the fact that that everybody in america seems to at some point want to own the brand as opposed to just create value for someone else, there are still opportunities, especially in the wine area. Mm-hmm. So, John, what do you think? I mean, I see a lot of new models popping out, like, you know, uh, mini bar and apps and this and that. Like, uh, are there any, like, new channels? Uh, like, I just came from China and it's insane, like, what kind of different 
models exist out there it's like some other world uh maybe you can shine some light on where are different opportunities apart from the traditional three tier or direct to consumer any other channels or uh models that have come have you've come across well yeah yeah i mean you you just mentioned when you think of um drizzly we have thirsty mini bar reserve bar mm-hmm. is one right now that that uh is doing very very well you know, it's so, not, it's, so let's just hold on a second. So what is, let's say, Drizzly is like, they, they are all, all consumer delivery things, but how how can brand legally uh, get into that system? Yes. What, well, what, what makes some of these, if you take uh, Reserve Bar, for example, uh, and, and I mentioned Thirsty, they're, they're slightly different models. But what, what happens is that uh, a program like that, what they offer is that, you can have, they've got a network of retailers around the United States in major markets. So multiple retailers in each of these in, in, in major markets. And so what happens is that you can effectively get your brand, a new brand can effectively get to consumers uh, and, 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 and communicate with them off of, let's say, a website that you have, your website, the brand's website, where a consumer can get educated on a brand and then click, where can I buy? And now they click on and they can be directed through these websites to participating retailers around the country. And that's a very powerful tool because that's about as fast now uh, route to market as you can get for a very brand, you know, a new brand. And so that's why you see. Nice. So that's a great way. Uh, actually, brand owners can help uh, retailers deplete. That's amazing. Uh, w- w- without a doubt, it gives them the ability to effectively direct orders to these retailers around the, the, the country. And obviously, the, the, it's got to be structured so that there are multiple retailers. Uh, the laws would, would, would require that, that, that multiple retailers can, can be involved in that process. But that's exactly what it's about. You want as many retailers, right, carrying the brand. And so these programs give brands, new brands, an opportunity. And, th- and those are models, as you mentioned, said, that really didn't exist just a few years ago. And so, um, you know, that's, that's another way uh, we, we see. And then, of course, behind that, there are companies, you know, MHW, uh, there are other players like ourselves. There's um, LibDib is another one for small craft players. You know, they, 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 Liberation Distributors, they, they've set up a model to help some of the smaller folks get to market. Um, so there are players like that out there and new ones that are coming uh, to help these new brands. The, the one thing that everybody's aware of in this industry is that craft players, be they in America or overseas, um, consumers want to know about them and want to try them. And that's not going to change in the coming decades. So there will be more and more, I think, options for those brands coming. And uh, these are just a, a couple, of, as we mentioned, but you'll see, start to see even even more uh, coming down the pike. There's also movements, you know, at the federal and state side about how to help some of these brands, you know, achieve that distribution, recognizing that there's direct-to-consumer shipping going on online, but really none of those same benefits on spirits. And that's being discussed. Uh, I know we're involved in discussions down in Washington on, on that front today about how do we allow or, or come up with a model that allows players, not just domestic, but foreign, to be able to uh, deal directly with consumers on, in a controlled environment uh, so that, you know, obviously that from a social responsibility standpoint and from a tax collection standpoint that, that all the parties are protected Similar to the way they, they handled the wine side. Can that be done for spirits at some point down the road? Understood. So I think uh, number fourth point was infrastructure. And I think, uh, you know, we, we can understand what that means. I'll jump to uh, funding and timeline because I had uh, a question there. Uh, on the timeline, like, do you have any specific uh, months that you would advise brand owners to sort of launch? Like, I mean, based on my experience, for example, I would pick like March or April where distributors and retailers are opening up to new products and then uh, get super ready by October and then boom, like go for the big displays and have like a 12 month plan. What's your, uh, you know, learnings? Well, I think you're, you're, you're right on that. I mean, first quarter, I, I would say even if you could, if you could get to market, even January and February, uh, where you might have an opportunity to get more 
of the what we'll call it the distributor and retailer time um, in, in, in those early days. I think that's very, very helpful. One thing we've got to consider any brand coming in, there's obviously the approval process. And that approval process down in Washington um, is probably depending on the category. It's spirits and it's all. How is that one. going these days? I well, mean, you, you know, would know more than anyone else. It, it, it's actually it had picked up. It, it was more efficient a little while ago, maybe a year ago. What's happened is because of again the continued proliferation of brands. Uh, even though TTV at the federal level said has added last year, they added I think it was something like 22 new headcount to assist in new, new brand approvals, be it formula and label, they're still training people. And so what's happening is that you have some delays in getting approval. So I would allow myself extra time on that. Uh, I would always say, give yourself two to three months on that whole process yeah. just to be so, absolutely covered on that. You, you could get lucky. And let let me just express <laughs> Yeah. Understood. Let, let me explain that to the audience. So, for example, if you're an Australian winery, uh, you already have an importer saying yes, and they gave the purchase order. You know, it will take about two months to even get your labels approved before you do your printing batch. So just keep that in mind. And then the second is, let's say you're a Californian winery or a distillery trying to get a New York wholesaler. You know, you have the state posting. Every state has different laws, but let's say in New York, there is this price posting and all that stuff, label approvals. So keep 30 days for that, right? So I think producers need to understand uh, the timelines, legal compliance timelines of each state and market. So sorry, John, back to you. No, that, that that's exactly right. And again, sometimes if it's a very simple wine label, they may turn that around very quickly. But typically, if, you're, if, if it involves any type of flavoring and spirit, then there's other complexity. But you're right, you have to get through the federal approval process, which, as you know, we have a team of, of probably 20 that, that are involved in that process. And so the sooner you, you can get on top of that, the better, because there's always the possibility that it gets, the label could get rejected or sent back for a, a minor change, which could, uh, you know, set you back another week or two for changes and things like that. So, so give yourself, you're right, uh, a couple of months on that, and then, as you said, some of these states have lead time requirements on registration and so forth. So build in a little bit of cushion for that. And then, um, you know, anywhere. I mean, we've seen brands get get through the system as quickly as 45 days and be available for sale in, in a market like Florida or California. But in price posting states or, or, or others, uh, you know, you, you, you could be another month or two. So allow yourself plenty of time there. So to your point, if you're if you're looking for a first quarter launch, because strategically it makes most sense, uh, you don't want to be launching, as we said, in the fourth quarter, then you, you should be thinking about that process, getting out there and getting your product into the system for approval, both at federal and state, maybe somewhere, you know, four or five months before that. Fantastic. So I think, John, just uh, we will end this uh, in about three to four minutes. Just one last question. What kills a brand launch? Like any, any things that you would advise them not to do? Um, well, I, I think launching, one of the big things, as we said earlier, when we talked about the five critical areas, uh, all of those are very, very important. And actually, Sid, any one of those, a, a poor job in any one of those can actually kill a brand launch. But one, one, if, if you wanted to focus on a particular area, I, I would say funding and timeline could be very, very uh, critical and, and disastrous. If, if you launch a brand and you really don't have the proper funding and, and you're not able to really evaluate the potential of that brand, for, for those reasons. I think people get it so wrong uh, because they don't account the inventory and accounts receivable. Yep. In fact, accounts receivable is just going to keep growing like anything. People underestimate that. Absolutely. And, and then, you know, the, the worst thing of all is that as you're measuring your potential success and you're looking at, let's say, repeat activity in a test market, and now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to expand that but now you're, you're running around trying to figure out how do I fund? Well, then you've really hurt yourself you know, uh, dramatically in that particular case. And so understanding the funding side of it and the timeline and, and recognizing that in America, it's not gonna happen overnight. Yes, every once in a while, you'll see a, a, a rocket ship brand 
But even most times I'll tell you that if you look back, those brands tend to have been around a little bit longer than the average consumer realizes. A a great case in point and probably maybe a, a, a drastic one is Tito's Vodka. As you know, Tito's has been in the market for close to 20 years plus, and in the in, in the last six years, it, it has you know moved to probably over eight million cases. But probably 80% of that growth has occurred in the last six years. So, um, but but timeline and funding are very very critical because to really measure your opportunity, you you, you don't want to be distracted, you, you know, by by areas like funding that that never gave you the right read if if you know what i mean you had to yeah, pull yeah. back or cut yeah, back yeah yeah and i think i think you know uh, uh that funding sometimes can help you if you're really ready to take uh, the momentum growth like for example let's say you just uh, say mescal and if you were a mescal producer and, and are in the market for about 10 years now was the time to like double down absolutely and and take advantage of the opportunity the other thing said i just wanted to come back to, I, I referenced it before, the Craft Beverage Modernization Tax Act. For, for a lot of your listeners around the world, this is a very unique p- period in time, really one unprecedented uh, in my 30 years plus in the industry. For the last two years, um, there has been a tax advantage for in beverage alcohol, where brands like a, a spirit brand is saving 70% of their federal excise tax uh, effectively it's it's almost on a nine liter case. Uh, they're saving about twenty dollars a case, believe it or not, on federal excise tax up to, you know, the first uh, fifty to well, well actually uh, fifty thousand cases of nine liter uh, spirits at eighty proof can save up to almost one point two million dollars. And so, for people that are launching a brand in America over the last two years, they've had a tremendous advantage, and that and a lot of those that savings can and go it's in there. Is it still active? It, it, it's still active and, and it's going to be active until the end of this year. And now we've been working uh, very diligently down in Washington, as have many members of the industry uh, on getting it extended into next year and potentially made permanent. Now, wine has also uh, enjoyed uh, an example would be almost if you were launching a wine brand and you were able to sell 50,000 cases you would have picked up $100,000 roughly in tax savings on your brand. And so there's an opportunity for new brands. And if we're able to, if we're successful in getting the government, and right now there's a lot of bipartisan support uh, in Congress and in the Senate uh, to not only extend it, but potentially make it permanent. And a lot of it is geared towards helping new players enter this space. And that's creating jobs, as you can imagine, and, and, and a lot of, um, economic benefit to not just the players that are directly involved, but, but all the third party providers, uh, they're all benefiting from that. So, um, we've been very active, as I said, down in Washington, uh, we actually, this year, uh, besides being active members with the national association of beverage importers, we joined and we have a board seat with the distilled spirits council discus, and they've taken both Navi and discus have done a great job in, in supporting this. And this helps wineries, breweries, and, uh, and, and spirit players. And most importantly, it, it does not discriminate. It's for U.S. players as well as foreign players. And I think that's that's the beauty of it. So we've got to keep our fingers crossed and keep working on that. But we've got these great tailwinds and they're going to affect and impact even without it. I mean, the U.S. market is still uh, the market, but boy, with it, uh, this is the time. And, and foreign players are actually able to have a say how those funds, you know, who gets, you know, what importer gets the benefit of those tax savings and all. So it's a really interesting, interesting time. One that I never thought I'd, I'd see in, in terms of uh, tax savings that can be used now uh, that move from federal excise tax to potential marketing and sales dollars. Fantastic. Got it. Super. So I think, I mean, America still is the best uh, market, uh, folks, you know, you should for sure, go out there and sell. <laughs> so, John, I think thanks very much. You know, we are uh, end, uh, ending this. Have you, have you got anything else to say? Uh, anything else you would want to uh, add to this, which well, we may well, edit and add it? Sure. Just to, to say that so much of what, what happens in America is still 
um, contingent on on strong social responsibility. And I think America is doing a, a, a terrific job in that area. And I think, you know, I think it leads the world that way in terms of quality of product. Uh, we don't have some of the problems that the rest of the world seems to have sometimes in terms of <clears throat> whether product coming in is the product it's supposed to be. I think responsibility, you know, making sure that we're protecting the under 21s and so forth. Uh, organizations like responsibility.org, which is part of Discus, they do an amazing job uh, that way. That's very, very important to the marketing and sales of product in America. So you've got to have that balance where people recognize that, yes, we want more access for new products in America. And at the same time, we've got to make sure that uh, we're socially responsible and that, you know, the young people today, that, that, that when they see the marketing and advertising out there, uh, that, that it's not drawing people in that shouldn't be in. Uh, so those things are very, very important in America. And, um, you know, drunk driving, making sure that, that those statistics are moving in the right direction and that uh, young people are protected. That's so, so critical. Uh, yep, spot on. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a very rare combination of, uh, you know, uh, the maturity of the developed nation and the hunger of a developing nation, you know, like where you're, you can still be ambitious and you can still, you know, make a brand and work and get results. Yes, it, it is. It's that combination. But you, you've got to, you know, you've got to be conscious of all sides of it. And as we enter today, the world of cannabis and its potential impact, there are, you know, some of the same challenges are going to be faced uh, in that industry as well. And I think they could learn a lot from the way beverage alcohol has been managed since 1934 and, and, and evolving with, you know, trying to, to reach, you know, achieve modernization in this environment today with, with, with a changing business infrastructure in America. I think, uh, as I said, cannabis will learn and can learn a lot from the way alcohol, both at the federal and state level, has been handled in, in a positive way.